Coming up on Tech Nation, Dr. Nadine Burke-Harris. Over 3 million people have watched her TED Talk, How Childhood Trauma Affects Health Across the Lifetime. She's here with her new book, The Deepest Well, Healing the Long-Term Effects of Childhood Adversity. It's not just a public health problem, it might be your problem. Then on Tech Nation Health, Chief Correspondent Dr. Daniel Kraft talks about the microbiome. Actually, that would be Larry Smarr's microbiome and how the right surgical intervention can change everything. All this coming up on this week's Tech Nation. Let's take five with Moira Gunn. This is Five Minutes. I'm loving every article I read about IBM's much-publicized technology breakthrough. The media generally describe it as the ability to store data in a single atom. But frankly, that's for general consumption. It's actually the ability to direct a single atom to be in one magnetic state or another, to have it remain in that state, and then to be able to detect which state it's in. When you say it that way, it doesn't sound like much, which is why you might call a description, which reads, the ability to store data in a single atom, a whole lot of hype. It does not mean that there's a single atom in which you could store a Netflix file or a Word document or your email. Well, at least not yet anyway. So for the time being and for some time to come, it's a fantastic breakthrough to be able to deliberately get an atom to be in one of two magnetized states, to observe that the atom stays in that state unless tampered with and to be able to detect which magnetic state the atom is in. You might wonder why this has computer scientists and engineers dancing in the streets, or at the very least, whistling happily at their computer desks and texting their friends. It's pretty simple, and I'll tell you why. Computer scientists and engineers know that every bit of digital storage that has ever been built was built on the ability to make something physical be in one of two different states, that the states would stay that way, and that technology could detect which state it was in. IBM's breakthrough means that decades of that know-how can be applied all over again. If you haven't already guessed it, you should know that this two stable states with ability to both detect and set approach to storage technology is in some form or another at the base of the storage in every laptop or computer you've ever owned or used, on every cell phone and smartphone you've ever owned or used, and in every one of those USB memory sticks which are scattered all over your life, from your office to your computer bag to the junk drawer in your kitchen. To be sure, there's plenty of work to be done here yet. But when engineers say, this is now a previously solved problem, it's like a wide receiver who catches the football, turns and realizes he's got an open field run. The truth is, engineers can take anything that takes on two different states and make a data storage system. And as with so many things, size matters. 
That single atom, which can be in two different states, which we call zero and one, for IBM, it can now be done in a single atom. On your hard drive, the material it takes to store that zero or one, it takes some 100,000 atoms. Yep, do the math. In digital storage, as in golf, a low score is a very good thing. At the same time, while technology is getting tinier, humans are still just about the same size. If I gave you a USB drive that was one one hundred thousandth of the ones we have now, well, you get the point. So yes, size matters. In fact, our size also matters. So when that day comes when a one and a zero can be stored in something even smaller than an atom, given how big we are, we might not care. But actually, I think we will. I'm Moira Gunn. This is Five Minutes. Five Minutes is produced at the studios of KQED FM in San Francisco. Five Minutes is a production of Tech Nation Media. I'm Paul Lancor. From San Francisco, I'm Moira Gunn, and this is Tech Nation. Today on Tech Nation, Heinz Award winner Dr. Nadine Burke Harris with her book. The Deepest Well, Healing the Long-Term Effects of Childhood Adversity. Then on Tech Nation Health, Chief Correspondent Dr. Daniel Kraft talks about our microbiomes, how they can change, and why they matter. The science is clear on this. It has determined that adversity is a social determinant for poor long-term health outcomes. It's true of humans. It's true of frogs. Dr. Nadine Burke-Harris. Yes, yes, that's absolutely right. Um, some of the foundation for this work, for, for my understanding of it, really came for, from research that I did when I was in college. And I worked in an uh, amphibian endocrinology lab. We were looking at hormones in frogs. And um, at, we were actually looking at... Um, the effect of stress hormones on the growth and development of uh, tadpoles. And what was fascinating for me, and uh, it was, you know, this research that I that I thought back on when I was, you know, f- further out in my medical practice and thinking about how stress affects um, development and health was that um, for, for these tadpoles, what we found was that the piece that was critical was the timing of when they were exposed to the stress hormones. If if these frogs were exposed to stress hormones right at the time that they were turning into adult um, uh, frogs, then it was actually adaptive. These stress hormones actually helped that metamorphosis 
happen faster, and it helped these frogs kind of get out of the stressful situation, um, which in this case might be a crowded pond, right, and actually (laughs) develop into adult uh, toad faster, which was great. But for the younger tadpoles, the ones that were not close to metamorphosis, what we found was that um, the the same lev- dose of stress hormones was actually um, inhibited their growth, um, affected their ability to regulate um, essentially the tadpole equivalent of blood pressure is you know <laughs> yeah. osmoregulation, um, and ultimately it actually increased their risk of death. And it was really fascinating to see that the same hormones, right? which for frogs was corticosteroids, and in humans, it's essentially cortisol. The same hormones had a very different effect depending on when in development they were exposed. We're going to go from tadpoles and frogs to humans, and thank you for ask, answering the next question was, well, how the heck do you stress a frog? You know? <laughs> do you yell at it? What do you do? You know. But now you answered that. Crowded yeah. ponds are, are one of the uh, one of the ways to do that. Uh, but I wanted to to put people in situ. We have listeners all over the world, and I think they all know San Francisco. Many have actually visited San Francisco, but of those who visit, in all likelihood, they didn't go to that area known as Bayview-Hunters Point. Describe that for us. So Bayview-Hunters Point is uh, a neighborhood of families. It has um, the highest rate of home ownership in San Francisco. It's got the highest number of kids of any neighborhood in San Francisco. It's been historically an African-American uh, predominantly community, although a lot of these demographics are changing now. Um, but it's also a really challenged neighborhood. Um, it's a place where, um, you know, of of all of the neighborhoods in the city, for most of them, heart disease is the leading cause of, of death. Right. Um, And for a few, it's HIV AIDS. But in in Bayview Hunters Point, still the the leading cause of early mortality is violence. So this is a place where, you know, there are um, shootings that happen on the street. There are drug deals that happen sometimes um, in front of kindergartners on their way to school. And um, it's. Having had the opportunity to to spend a fair amount of time in Bayview, it's this amazing combination between some of the most beautiful and some of the most challenging things in our cities, which we have these families, we have these, you know, um, incredibly uh, cohesive, you know, you know, large families where you, you know, have lots of these relationships, but also um, a lot of poverty, a lot of adversity. Um, a lot of violence, and um, and family struggle. Now, CPMC, most people say, gee, that's in Pacific Heights. Really nice place. A lot of visitors have been there, right up the hill from the marina. Um, you went there as a fairly uh, newly minted pediatrician, if you will, um, and you saw for yourself through there was a difference between the health status of children in Pacific Heights and the marina and the children of Bayview Hunters Point without actually even going out to Bayview Hunters Point. 
Yeah, so um, when I first finished my residency at Stanford and I came to work at California Pacific Medical Center, um, you know, my interest and my passion was always to serve vulnerable communities. And I was this crazy, ambitious, you know, Young doctor, and uh, we need a television show about you. <laughs> and uh, it was really funny. My uh, my boss went away on vacation uh, about a week after I had started work, and I I had um, been having conversations with folks in the community, and I had this crazy idea. We were going to open a clinic in Bayview Hunters Point. So I spent the time that my boss was away, you know, reading all the research and pulling it together and and um, yeah, coming up with the beginnings of a business plan for what would ultimately become the Bayview Child Health Center. And what was really nuts was that when my boss, um, you know, came back from his vacation and saw what I was up to, um, he really helped me. And together, we pulled together this business plan and pitched it to Dr. Martin Brotman, who was the CEO of CPMC at the time. And instead of telling me that I was insane, um, <laughs> he he actually got behind the idea, which was really amazing. And he was really um interested in demonstrating CPMC's commitment to the community. And um, 18 months later, the Bayview Child Health Center opened its doors. I think what was so impressive for me, and you can actually hear it in how I kind of asked that question, is you didn't have to go out there to figure out there was a problem. There had been a 2004 assessment of public health by zip code, and there it was right in the report. That's right. Um, there was something called um, uh, the Community Health Assessment that was put together by the Hospital Council of Northern California. And that is a, a report that documents the um, health status of individuals in each neighborhood in San Francisco by zip code. And uh, what was fascinating is as I was reading the report, right next to 94123, which is the Marina District, you turn the page and the next page is 94124, which is Bayview Hunters Point. And when you look at the difference in the health status between kids who are born in in the marina versus Bayview Hunters Point. And you see dramatic increases in um, the risk of things like asthma and pneumonia and diabetes. And, you know, for me looking at that, thinking to my, I was thinking to myself, how is it possible that families who are living in the same city, right? San Francisco, one of the most well-resourced cities in the world have such different outcomes on the basis of zip code. Well, one of the disconcerting aspects here is that uh, you point out it it was thought that providing more health care access to economically challenged communities or socioeconomically challenged communities would solve the problem. And you say, uh, it doesn't. Yeah, well, what I found was that, you know, when we opened the clinic, um, we did a great job of providing really high-quality care, 
putting into place all of the latest protocols um, and, and doing all of the things that I had had learned when I did my master's of public health as part of this public health playbook. Um, so it's all of the the best practices in terms of clinical practice and for serving vulnerable communities. Um, and, you know, our kids were getting, we were able to increase the immunization rate. We were able to uh, reduce the asthma hospitalization rate. But when I looked at, you know, the biggest drivers behind um, disease and risk of death, we really weren't moving the needle. And that was um, something that was incredibly frustrating to me. And my interest was in, in, in getting to the bottom of that, understanding if we could get new tools to be able to move the needle. You're listening to Tech Nation. I'm Moira Gunn, and my guest today is Dr. Nadine Burke-Harris. She's an MD with a master's in public health from Harvard. She did her residency at Stanford and is now the founder and CEO of the Center for Youth Wellness in San Francisco. In 2016, she received the Heinz Award for her impact on the human condition. Her TED Talk, How Childhood Trauma Affects Health Across the Lifetime, has been viewed, well, it's closing in on four million times now. I used to say it's over three million. She's here today with The Deepest Well, Healing the Long-Term Effects of Childhood Adversity. Well, let's tell people why you name this The Deepest Well. The name The Deepest Well refers to uh, the public health parable that I tell in the book where, um, you know, it was um, the late 1800s. There was the cholera epidemic uh, in in London and a a doctor and epidemiologist, Dr. John Snow, so not Game of Thrones, Jon Snow. <laughs> um, okay. But, uh, the other Jon Snow. Really? Okay. Yes. Um, so, uh, Dr. Jon Snow was investigating this cholera epidemic. And, you know, at the time, people thought that disease was spread by, by foul airs, right? And so they were doing yeah. their best to combat that as, you know, the source of the problem. But when... Uh, Dr. Snow went around and actually interviewed and, and tracked the households where um, the the cholera outbreak had affected. What he determined was that all of these folks, what they had in common was that they all drank from the same water source, which was a water pump with a pump handle, right? Like a manually operated pump handle. Remember, this is before germs. Exactly. Uh, and <laughs> or before so, we knew about germs. Exactly. The germs there, yeah. And so when he convinced public health officials to remove the handle from that well, the cholera outbreak subsided. And the reference here uh, in terms of the title of the book is really around the importance of getting to the source. If we don't understand really what the underlying problem is, what the underlying source of the problem is, then um, it's going to be much more difficult for us to treat effectively. Well, that brings us to childhood toxic stress. Define that for us. What kind of adversity is problematic? Um, The groundbreaking research about this work was really done by the CDC and Kaiser Permanente. And um, 
they did a study called the Adverse Childhood Experiences Study, where they looked at 10 categories of childhood adversity. Um, Those include physical, emotional, and sexual abuse, physical and emotional neglect, or growing up in a household where a parent was mentally ill or substance dependent or incarcerated or where there was parental separation or divorce or domestic violence. And what they found was that, number one, these things were incredibly common. And number two, the more of them a person had, the greater the risk to their health. And over the past two decades since that study was published, the, you know, the rest of science has kind of caught up to better understand how is it that childhood adversity affects health. And when we say the greater the risk to your health, I want to point out, we're not talking about a little bit. We're talking about double the risk for heart disease, double the risk for cancer, two and a half times the risk for stroke, almost four times the risk of chronic lung disease, and 11 times the risk for Alzheimer's. So we're not talking about small changes to risk. And what we now understand is that um, just like those tadpoles, children are especially sensitive to the impacts of uh, adversity. Uh, Because when we experience stressful or traumatic things, they release stress hormones, things like adrenaline and cortisol that have that actually change the way our brains, our, our hormones, our uh, immune systems function. And when this happens in high doses in children, then it can actually change um, the way children's brains develop, the way their hormonal systems develop, the way their immune systems develop, and even the way their DNA is read and transcribed. And those changes are what the American Academy of Pediatrics now calls toxic stress. Now, let's talk a little about what physiologically happens. You know, your DNA is your DNA, um, but there are what we call epigenetic changes around that DNA, and that also affects your ability to reproduce your cells accurately. Yes, that's right. So I think um, most of us know that we have our genome, our genetic code. And um, that's the the sequence of our DNA that dictates things like, you know, eye color and height. And then uh, what gets, I think, a little bit less press is is something called our epigenetic regulation. So on top of our genetic code, our our cells actually have a whole sequence of markers that are overlain on top of our genetic code that dictate the way our DNA is read and transcribed. In fact, the term epigenetic literally means above the genome. And these epigenetic markers are a little bit like the musical notations um, when we're reading sheet music. They're not the notes themselves, right? Those are the DNA. But they tell us how how strongly or how softly, how loudly we should play that that piece of music. Or some notations mean you should skip the next segment altogether or repeat a section. And that's exactly what our epigenetic notations do for our DNA. They tell our cells how much or how little of 
the proteins that our DNA is telling us to make, how much of that should we actually make? How strongly should we express this DNA? And there's this wear and tear component to this childhood toxic stress. Um, Elizabeth Blackburn and her colleagues received a Nobel Prize for showing how the very tips, like the the plastic tips at the end of shoelaces, the the telomerase, if I pronounced it correctly, that they they protect the DNA, but they erode under trauma. Our telomeres are these non-coding segments at the end of our DNA. And they're actually, you know, Dr. Blackburn refers to them as um, the shoelace coverings that keep our DNA from unraveling. I often think of them as bumpers on the end of our DNA, which is, you know, when something happens, our telomeres take the first hit. You should see the bumper on the back of my car. (laughs) (laughs) And they they actually protect our DNA from wear and tear. Um, Our telomeres can be eroded by lots of things, um, toxins, you know, uh, cigarette smoke. Uh, but, uh, but one of the things that erodes our telomeres is childhood adversity. And what happens when our telomeres get eroded too quickly is that um, that cell becomes old and no longer functions normally. So if it's a cell, for example, um, in the pancreas that's supposed to be making insulin, what that means is that you have increased risk of developing diabetes. Um, The other thing that happens when our telomeres erode uh, too quickly is that the ability of the cell to replicate normally is impaired, and that can increase the risk for things like cancer. Now, we could go in and try to measure the DNA and and the telomeres and all that kind of thing. But we can measure it externally, if you will, by measuring adverse childhood experiences. And that's where ACE comes in. Yeah. So um, there are definitely two different approaches that we can take. We can um, wait until the harm has already happened and then... um, measure the biological impact, the biological wear and tear on the body. Or, and I think this is especially important in children, we can use this science to do screening, early detection, and early intervention. And that's what we've been doing at my center, the Center for Youth Wellness, and hoping to increasingly do around the country. So, We know from the Adverse Childhood Experiences study that a person who has, you know, four or more adverse childhood experiences, if they don't get any intervention, they're at twice the risk for, you know, heart disease and cancer and uh, and two and a half times the risk for stroke. Now, rather than waiting for those long-term things to happen, what we do in our center is that we screen children for their exposure to childhood adversity, right? Because we recognize that this exposure activates a biological cascade that can endure in the body for decades. The goal of screening is to recognize which children are at high risk and then intervene before they develop the health problems that are associated with high ACEs.
I'm speaking with Dr. Nadine Burke-Harris, the author of The Deepest Well, Healing the Long-Term Effects of Childhood Adversity. We'll talk more after a break. Podcasts of Tech Nation and Tech Nation Health are available at NPR One, iTunes, Stitcher, and other podcast syndication outlets. Coming up in the second half of our show on Tech Nation Health, Chief Correspondent Dr. Daniel Kraft talks about the microbiome, or rather, Larry Smarr's microbiome, and what happened after surgery. Stay with us. Listening to Tech Nation, I've been speaking with Dr. Nadine Burke Harris, the author of *The Deepest Well: Healing the Long-Term Effects of Childhood Adversity*. Now, can the damage be reversed? Yes. Oh, oh good news! Good news. Um, listen, she says. Listen. So you know, it's 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 funny. Um, you know, we talk a lot about the science of adversity and how it leads to disease. But one of the things that this research and the science also shows us is that um, safe, stable, and nurturing relationships and environments are actually healing for kids. And when I'm talking about healing, I'm not just talking about it makes kids feel better, right? Um, Our center um, uh, just looked at over 15,000 research articles on this topic and One of the things that we looked at particularly is what interventions improve outcomes for kids. And in a randomized controlled trial where they uh, randomized kids who had been exposed to adversity, who were in institutional care, either to high-quality, nurturing foster care, right, or remaining institutionalized. And what they found was that the kids who were randomized into high-quality, nurturing uh, relationships, by age eight, they saw changes on MRI in the white matter structures in these children's brains. We are talking about 
nurturing relationships, literally changing the structure of children's brains in a way that is measurable on MRI. The other thing that I want to add about the importance of the intervention uh, of of these interventions is um, similarly, this is, you know, work done uh, by uh, Michael Meany and his team at McGill University in this now famous study where even across species, right, what they found was that when they looked in rats and they took these baby rats and they stressed them out and then they gave them back to their moms, some of the moms did Lots of licking and grooming, right? It's the equivalent of hugs and Welcome kisses. Welcome home. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Like, I'm so sorry that happened to you, right? So they did this, you know, lots of licking and grooming. And some rat moms didn't. And for the pups of the moms who did lots of licking and grooming, those pups performed better on cognitive tests, right? They had a more normally functioning stress response system. And when they became adult rats... They actually did lots of licking and grooming for their own babies. But then what they did was Meany and his colleagues actually switched the rat pups at birth. So um, they took the rat pup of a genetically, uh, genetically low-licking mom and had that pup reared by a mom who did lots of nurturing caregiving. And what they found was that that rat pup performed better on cognitive tests, had a more normally functioning stress response system, and that the epigenetic markers of that rat was actually more closely associated with the mom that had raised them, not their genetic moms. And so literally what we see, we can see changes in epigenetic regulation with safe, stable, and nurturing relationships. There are many adults listening now who are saying, okay, I, th- I, think, uh, I think I got some ACE scores here. Yeah. <laughs> I usually like to score high on tests, but not this one. <laughs> In the back of your book, there's a very simple test to see how high you score. Um, just if you could tell it with a with a note to the adults listening to remind them how they might score on such a test yeah so um in terms of for adults and one of the things that was really important for me in in writing the deepest well is to also understand for adults who have their own history of aces what they can be doing and we actually um looked at a ton of research. And the things that actually help to um, reverse the biological impacts of toxic stress. And and when we understand, you know, toxic stress has to do with, um, you know, increasing stress hormones, right? Increasing inflammation, um, affecting the way that uh, reducing neuroplasticity and affecting the way that our, our brain cells talk to each other. And um, leading to premature cellular aging through this, um, you know, telomere effect. There are six interventions that I talk about in the deepest well that are all targeted, uh, and what we see in the research are effective at reducing stress hormones, reducing inflammation, enhancing neuroplasticity, and delaying cellular aging. And these include 
regular exercise. Like we all know that exercise is good for us. Oh yeah, but I remember now. <laughs> <laughs> now we know down to the molecular level of why it actually um, is associated with such improvements in health, right? So regular exercise, good sleep hygiene, right? And, and, and getting good, um, healthy sleep. It turns out that while we're sleeping, our stress response is recalibrating itself. And so um, poor sleep is not only associated with, uh, you know, we, hey, we lose sleep when we're stressed out, right? Like we know that sleep is always the first thing to go. But it actually, when we don't sleep well, we actually generate more stress hormones, right? Like not sleeping is a biologically stressful process. So sleep is one of the things that's really important. Another um, thing is, uh, you know, I talked about healthy relationships, certain types of nutrition that also can help to uh, reduce inflammation and enhance neuroplasticity. Um, Good old-fashioned mental health, right? Like, (laughs) you know, when we, you know, don't forget good old-fashioned therapies, um, really important. So sleep, exercise, nutrition, mindfulness, mental health, and healthy relationships. And that that was the other piece, mindfulness and um, meditative practices can also help to um, enhance uh, neuroplasticity uh, improve immune function and reduce stress hormones. So figure out what your A score is. See how much work you really got to do besides just being a healthy, normal unit. That's right. And, you know, the thing that's really critical for adults is understanding what the problem is in the first place. I think for a lot of adults, um, you know, they spend a lot of time chasing down the symptoms, right? Um, realizing that they feel stressed or, God, I need a drink at the end of the day or something like that. And really instead recognizing, oh, my goodness, because of what I've, I've experienced, my body may be making more stress hormones than the average person, right? And, um, you know, that may show up as me being quick to anger or having trouble controlling my impulses or getting sick easily when I feel overwhelmed. And when that happens, what adults can do when they know that that's the problem, then they can start to overlay these six things, right? So in addition to, you know, uh, doing that meditation, also doing that workout, seeing how your diet affects how you feel, right? And once we have the knowledge, that's the really important thing in understanding what's going on. You were talking about sleep versus non-sleep and very reminiscent of the work of Dr. Alicia Lieberman, uh, which also talks about talking about difficult experiences, making a story out of it. So often these early childhood traumas, especially years ago when they didn't exist and you're not supposed to talk about them, and you know, they didn't exist. So they could, it's important to scratch them out, if you will, and start talking about them. Why is that? Dr. Lieberman's work has shown is that particularly um, for kids, but honestly for all of us, the ability to speak the unspeakable is really important. And, um, you know, for a lot of us, we don't want to when – when it comes to, to especially things that are really traumatic, right, the nature of trauma is that we oftentimes shy away from it and we don't want to talk about it. And we especially don't want to talk about it with kids, right? Because we're worried that it's going to overwhelm them. And it turns out that um, what happens in those situations is that when kids don't have this information, they make up their own narrative about it. And particularly for children, 
a lot of the times they believe that they caused things to happen or they're responsible for what has gone on, right? And that... um, You'll keep that your whole life. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. It stays with people for a very long time. And um, and that is why uh, Dr. Lieberman's work is so profoundly important about having these narratives where we actually speak the truth and say, uh, you know, w- what is really going on if there is a loss of a loved one, if there is something scary um, that happens at home. And um, what we see with her excellent program is also um, – you know, helping parents get supports to be able to do that. Because for a lot of us, it's scary. We don't know how to do it, right? And so learning how to do that and getting the tools to be able to to speak the unspeakable um, is really powerful and really healing. Well, I don't imagine that the first time you came up with this Bayview Clinic idea that a whole bunch of people said, I'd rather work there than Pacific Heights. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> no. And driving there one day, you had your own brush with exposure to physical threats and gun violence. Retell that story for us. Oh, my goodness. I was on my way to a meeting at the Bayview YMCA. And as I was, um, you know, driving uh, down the sort of street. mindlessly, yeah, you drive. Yeah, exactly. Places. Just Am doing I my time. I'm okay. Doing my usual thing, you know. And it was one of these, you know, small kind of side streets. I noticed that the car in front of me kind of abruptly stopped, and I wasn't paying attention. You know, I just I stopped. I was waiting for this person. I was thinking about something else. And then I kind of looked up and said, wait, wait a minute. Okay, I'm going to have to go around this person. And in that moment, another car um, pulled up in the oncoming lane next to the car where um, I had uh, that was stopped in front of me and also stopped. And I was like, what is going on here? And then a car came in, uh, pulled in behind me. And uh, in that moment, I realized that there was something really shady going down. And, you know, a guy got out of one car and was, you know, uh, walked around and was delivering a package to the another, to the other car. And as he bent over, I could see, you know, out of the back of his waistband was the handle of a gun. And I... You got immediately really <laughs> tiny. <laughs> and in that moment, I was, I literally was like, oh my goodness. I hope these, I, th- this looks like a drug deal. I, um, I hope they don't decide. I hope it doesn't go bad and, you know, people don't start shooting. I hope they don't decide I'm a witness to anything that's happening here and decide that they have a problem with me. And so I kind of willed myself to be as tiny as possible and, Hopefully invisible. Um, But that was a really – and in, you know, a few seconds later, the whole thing was over. Everyone had driven off and I was, you know, sat there um, still a little bit shell-shocked. But it was a really important insight for me um, because in that moment, I felt like what it was like to be in this community – where something scary could be happening at any moment, 
right? And my own heart pounding, you know, brain gone blank moment was activation of my own fight or flight response. And it really helped me understand what my patients must be going through on a daily basis. Little people. Yeah, that's that right. No control. How are your telomeres doing? <laughs> <laughs> my telomeres are actually uh, doing pretty well. I I hope uh, because I actually I I you don't take side all streets these. anymore. <laughs> I I I am um, well. I do all the things that are hopefully supposed to buffer these effects of uh, of the stress response so that they don't lead to these long term problems. Now, with respect to the aces, you think, gee. We, should, we need to go out and test a whole lot of people. And yet not everyone was receptive. Especially poignant to me was the fact that the evidence that pointed to we need support in the Bayview-Hunters Point community came from the hospital council. But then you went back to the hospital council. Not such a great reception. Yeah, so that was... Um, uh a really challenging moment for me. I um, I was invited to to bring this research to uh, the hospital council um, by Dr. Brotman, and um, you know I spent all of this time preparing. I got all of my you know science down to a T, and when I presented to them this all of this information about adverse childhood experiences and the need to screen for ACEs. Um, uh, what was interesting about it was, um, you know, I thought that here we were, they were the CEOs of all of the hospitals in San Francisco. They would figure out how to solve this problem. And what they said to me was, you know, hey, Nadine, we believe you. We get you that this is a problem. Um, and uh, But essentially, in essence, what they said was, what are you going to do about it? Right? There I was thinking well, that old that, trick. <laughs> Not us, you. <laughs> there I was thinking that as the leaders of the hospital, right? Like they would surely have the solutions. And um they didn't. They didn't and they were looking at me saying, "Well, you know, what are you going to do about it?" And I I felt totally deflated because I just felt like, "Oh my goodness, I had assumed that they would just take it up and say, oh, we've got to be doing this for every single one of our patients right now. Um, But that didn't happen. But what did happen, which was um, a really transformative moment for me, was on my way out of that meeting, when I, you know, hit the, the button to go down in the elevator and I stood there waiting, in that moment, The woman who had been actually serving coffee to all of the hospital CEOs, she she came out after me and she stopped me in the hallway in front of the elevator and she said, you know, Dr. Burke, I want to tell you, that's me. And... I I looked at her and I said, you know, excuse me, because I was I was in my head. I was I was feeling so frustrated from this experience, and she said, "That is me. Those those aces that you were talking about." She said, "I have experienced all of them. I think I'm a ten out of ten. 
And um, she said, you know, and I've had some problems with my health. I have, you know, had some, I'm, I'm sober now, but I've had some challenges in the past. And she said, just hearing what you had to say, it was the first time that I really understood what was going on with me. And she looked at me and she touched my arm and she said, um, keep doing what you're doing. And that was, that moment was just a huge inspiration for me to really recognize that, you know, if we did not have protocols for how to screen for adverse childhood experiences, then by hook or by crook, we were going to develop them. And, and that is why I created the Center for Youth Wellness, and that is why we do the work that we do every day, because our goal is that um, every pediatrician in America will be routinely screening. Right now, we're only at 4%, right? Um, but our hope is within the next decade, every pediatrician in America will be screening for adverse childhood experiences. Such a pleasure, Dr. Harris. Nadine, you come back. Join us anytime. We'd love to have you back on the show. Thank you. It has been a joy. My guest today is Dr. Nadine Burke-Harris. The book is The Deepest Well, Healing the Long-Term Effects of Childhood Adversity. It's published by Houghton Mifflin Harcourt. I'm Moira Gunn. You're listening to Tech Nation. Welcome to Tech Nation Health, reimagining the future of health and healthcare with the emergence of new technologies and breakthrough science. Today on Tech Nation Health, Chief Correspondent Dr. Daniel Kraft talks about the microbiome. It's really one of those fields that's riding the exponential because the ability to identify, sequence, and apply big data machine learning to the microbiome in and on our bodies or in, in disease is really exploding. And, you know, there are really 100 million times as many bacteria on Earth as stars in the universe. And a lot of those bacteria and viruses, there's the virome, there's the genome, uh, on and in our bodies and seem to play an incredibly, incredibly important role in health and disease. Now, let me ask you, is the microbiome, is that primarily in our gut, solely in our gut, or are you talking about all the bacteria and virus and all, all the microorganisms all over our bodies? It really is different depending on what you might sample from behind your ear to in your mouth to in your, gut, in your upper gut to lower gut uh, to skin. And, and those are quite dynamic. They change based on did, what did you have for breakfast, uh, what antibiotic might you have taken, what food might you have had that actually could have had other elements, whether it's processed foods or others. And uh, as we start to be able to study this and access this information and crowdsource it, there's some really incredibly exciting uh, developments that may really shift uh, our understanding of normal biology and then how to leverage the microbiome both for prevention and therapy. Now, Larry Smarr, when we were at Exponential Medicine, he was, on, he was in my section there. It was really exciting. He was talking about his, his gut. He had had surgery since I saw him last, and it changed the whole microbiome there. Right. Well, Larry Smarr is interesting because he started out sort of as a big astrophysicist and data scientist there and has now applied using that same sort of technology and understanding data from the stars to his own inner, inner solar system of his microbiome, which is relevant to him because as a patient, as he's described and discussed, he has a form of inflammatory bowel disease. And uh, in your session in Exponential Medicine, he described the fact that he had a very 
first-of-a-kind surgery that removed a very specific part of his colon. But even before they did that to treat his, his inflammatory bowel disease, he'd been sequencing his microbiome repeatedly, including uh, just before and after getting a colonoscopy when they sort of clean out the gut. You take something off and call it go lightly, and it cleans out your gut in a sense. And a lot of the bacteria populations dramatically changed, but slowly over time would come back to his normal baseline. And then after his very specific surgery, which using a confluence of virtual reality and robotic surgery, took out the exact component of his colon that seemed to be causing his inflammation, his microbiome changed dramatically. And he tracked it every day. He would take a little stool sample and get it sort of analyzed. And his microbiome shifted dramatically from before surgery to after surgery to something that has a much higher, lower sort of profile of inflammation. So this is sort of an example, again, with an N of 1, and Larry's a very special kind of uh, quantified self-patient that may be the harbinger of how we look at certain diseases. And a disease like inflammatory bowel disease in the gut seems to be highly tied to the microbiome. One, one thing that was noted in this great session with Rob Knight, who's one of his colleagues at UCSD, who's a sort of a, a big godfather in the microbiome world, is it's been noted that over you know, the last decades, we've had many diseases go away, things like measles and mumps and hepatitis through the advent of, of vaccines and such. But at the same time, we've had an explosion in things like multiple sclerosis and Crohn's disease and type 1 diabetes and asthma that seem to be correlated to the sort of um, less diversity in our, particularly in our GI system and its microbiomes. His entire microbiome found a new level when it was healed and no longer had the, you know, affected portion in there. That really got my attention. Yeah, I think it's, you know, really important to understand that even today we're still at the even though this is an exploding field, at the early stages today, we can measure what populations of bacteria are there. And they, in, in Larry's case and others, you can actually, any of, any of your listeners out there can get your own microbiome done. You can go to uh, companies like Ubiome, little ubiome.com, or Second Genome, or the American Gut Project, and donate a little a bit of your stool. It's pretty easy to do. And get your microbiome from that time point back. And you could do that repeatedly. You could crowdsource that uh, stool uh, sample or skin sample and others and learn how you compare to others. But still, it's sort of very descriptive. The next levels of these are is to look at the sort of metabolome and the transcriptome. What are those bacteria doing? They actually can play a key role in, in metabolizing. And if you have certain populations that metabolize carbohydrates more slowly or in a different way, that might contribute to weight gain or other elements or your likelihood of, uh, of developing other diseases. And one of the things that have changed with our diets, uh, as, as, um, as Rob Knight described, they've looked at the diets of endogenous populations in rural parts of the world that haven't changed their diet in years. It turns out that now when we've shifted from sort of our, you know, ancient diets to those of the sort of fast food restaurant era today, it dramatically impacts our microbiome and our sort of gut diversity. And that gut diversity seems to be quite protective against uh, uh, autoimmune diseases. And so one of the things that many individuals are starting to do is really pay attention to what our microbiome is, how it's changed, what our diet, how, that, how our diet impacts that, and maybe a, a big sea change in how we manage everything from uh, things like obesity to inflammatory bowel disease to even psychiatric disorders, which seem to be tied to the bugs in our gut. The gut-brain axis is incre- incredibly important, and it may play a role in developing Parkinson's, autism, Alzheimer's, even schizophrenia. And there may be a way of hopefully picking up those changes early and modifying our microbiome all the way to an acute bad GI infection, something called C. difficile infection, it happens to folks in intensive care units often who are on other antibiotics uh, that we're giving these called fecal transplants uh, and uh, 
you know, a big new harbinger of how we might uh, moderate disease and optimize our health and wellness. And remember, this is, won't, won't be in isolation. The challenge in this exponential age is that we have all these potential new data sets from our base genome to our microbiome to our virome. Uh, there's a new company called, actually called Viome that's looking to integrate your microbiome and your viral elements and your transcriptome elements to help predict what diet and what changes you make specifically. And of course, that also might uh, be related to your physical activity and your sleep. So part of the new um, frontier of healthcare in this quote-unquote big data era is to make sense of these data sets in combination, analyzing not just from one individual patient, but from many of us, so that we can really get a picture and be proactive on our health and medicine to not just look at any ohm, but the combination of those to impact prevention, diagnostics, and therapy. An additional part, and I'm trained as an oncologist, which is really fascinating, it was just reported in the last uh, month, is that there even seems to be microbiome elements related to tumors and cancer. So in work out of Dana-Farber Institute, they found that in looking at bacteria that seem to be associated with colon cancer, they found a particular subtype called fusobacteria, which we have in the mouth and seems to be in some human colon cancers. And there was, when those colon cancers metastasized to the liver and other places, that bacteria seems to travel with them. So it's not necessarily guilt by association, but the fact that microbiome travels with the metastases of that colon cancer is fascinating. It may give us an angle into uh, diagnostics and therapy. So I would just say, you know, quoting uh, Bert Vogelstein, who's a, a cancer researcher at Johns Hopkins, that the, this entire idea that bacteria and tumors uh, is, you know, associated and may play a role in, in its element is really surprising, unexpected, and may give us an, an angle into uh, the future of cancer. Well, Daniel, thanks for coming in. Thank you, Moira. Dr. Daniel Kraft is chief correspondent of Tech Nation Health and the founder and chair of Exponential Medicine. More information is available at exponentialmedicine.com. For Tech Nation Health, I'm Moira Gunn. Tech Nation and its regular segment, Biotech Nation, are produced at the studios of KQED-FM in San Francisco. Executive producer is Matt Gardner. The director of technical production is Monte Carlos. And audio engineers include Howard Gelman, Seal Muller, and Larry Upton. Our theme music was composed by Ann Noctrieb-Zessiger and Robert Powell, with title creation provided by NameLab Incorporated of San Francisco. Program information and Internet audio is available on the web at technation.com. Tech Nation and Biotech Nation are productions of Tech Nation Media. I'm Paul Lancor. Thank you.